here with Everald Compton on this warm Saturday morning in Sydney. Everald up in Queensland, um, all vacationed out, gearing up for another one, I hear. Oh, well, you know, I uh, I uh, like, you know, running everywhere here and there, but I'm going to Parliament this week in Canberra, which I don't think you can call it a vacation, a vacation. But put it this way, it is an interlude in life that's always uh, that's always interesting. But next weekend we can talk about what I found out at Parliament. But I thought we might start today with the whole issue of HEX and the fees that people pay. And you must have a reasonable sort of a, a HEX uh, bill. I never got one because back in my day we never we didn't have any universities for people to go to, and I never went anywhere near one. Uh, but uh, uh, this week uh, at the press club, Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute made a speech saying how little governments charge the fossil fuel industries, the mining industries for the resources rent tax. They have a low tax because they've got to protect these industries and whatever. But at the same time, we charge every young person in Australia a fortune to go to university and get a degree. And he sort of said, well, what does Australia want? protected fossil fuel industry, protected mining industry, or does it want a nation full of smart kids who don't start behind the eight ball doing that? And he got a fair run in the media, and I, I supported him on, on uh, Twitter. Now, what's uh, what's your view of that, James? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting how, like, light touch we are with the mining industry and that, because people, like you say, make that argument that we need to protect our mining and resources industry and if we don't, we'll be out-competed from elsewhere, etc. Um, but I don't think the international experience bears that out because countries like Norway, who have a massive uh, fossil fuels and extraction industry, have these big sovereign wealth funds where they make their mining companies contribute heaps of money every year to, um, yeah. to government coffers. And their mining and extraction industries do absolutely fine. They do very, yeah. very well for themselves and they are a cornerstone of the Scandinavian economies. And yet they pay shitloads of money to the government um, and that money gets reinvested in the country. Now, here we operate under this assumption that we have to be really light touch and protect and coddle and uh, feather our mining industry because if we don't, um, it'll collapse, it'll go bust, there'll be mayhem, pandemonium, etc. But I just don't think it's true. So I think when Dennis got up there and observed that, despite all the um, power, force and funds the mining industry has, they're contributing nowhere near close to their fair share relative to other sectors of the economy. I think he was not only absolutely right on like a moral level, but also on a level demonstrated by real life examples in other countries, which I think is the important part. Well, true. And, and Norway... And they have these sovereign funds, the money gets paid, and people in Norway still pay their fair share of income tax. But these sovereign funds there are invested all over the world, and the income of which does all sorts of things for Norway. And as you say, the, the mining industry in Norway, which is a, a major part of their life, have prospered. They have not suffered uh, from this at all. And and I remember as a boy, a school teacher, old school teacher, I had said. We let mining companies dig minerals out of the ground and we only have them pay a little bit of money to the government for doing that and they make a fortune. But what they've taken out of the ground 
can't be put back again. I remember him you know, tapping the desk at school and saying, what they're taking out and not paying enough for cannot be put back again. It is lost, and I, I've never forgotten that. And so I think it's time that we did the Norway thing with every bit of mining, not just fossil fuel, and we have a sovereign fund that goes into quite separate to the sovereign fund uh, that we've got now, the future fund, another thing. And it's time we, we altered that round. But coming on from that, uh, James, young people paying hex fees. Now, as I mentioned to you, I, I, I didn't uh, ever get anywhere near a university. It was never given the opportunity back in the, when I was born, 1930s, 1940s. But I was very lucky, fortunate in some ways. My four children all got university degrees and they all went to university in the era of Gough Whitlam, where Gough Whitlam allowed them to go to university for nothing. Now, my family are not naturally Labor voters, but they think that Gough Whitlam was the greatest hero of all time because he allowed them to have an education and they didn't start off with, with an enormous bill like you have now. So why, what would happen if we went back to the Gough Whitlam era and didn't have hex fees? Are we going to bankrupt the country? What's going to happen? Well, I mean, you know, if, if we were taking money out of the mining industry like we should be, we could probably fund it because they're, they're behemoths. But I think... um. Regardless of whether or not one thinks uni should be totally free, and I don't know the economics of the sustainability of it, I can tell you for certain it's it's definitely much too expensive now. I mean, the one of the things the Morrison government did, which was one of the more sinister things they did, was really, really jack up the fees on humanities degrees. So arts yeah. degrees, law degrees, commerce degrees, economics degrees, anything that wasn't a maths or science degree, pretty much. Um, they really, really jacked up the fees on. And it's it's really bad for students who want to go into those paths because coming out with more and more hex debt than ever, um, which, you know, it makes it harder to do things like buy a place or get yourself set up financially because, yes, you don't have to um, pay your hex until you hit a certain threshold of income. But by the same token, it's still the case of, like, as property prices spiral out of control, et cetera, it's just another thing, another impost on the back of young people who are trying to move up in life. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with not going to uni. If someone wants to go to TAFE and be a tradie, if someone wants to follow an artistic pursuit, that's all well and good, and they should be encouraged to do so because it's what they want to do. But for people who do want to go to uni, um, it, it just becomes a bigger and bigger burden every year um, especially the um, indexation of HEX when inflation, profit-driven inflation from businesses uh, caused HEX uh, indexation to skyrocket as well. So lots of moving parts here. Well, look, there's all sorts of variations. What I think is we should re-look at the whole thing because, yeah, as you point out, young people not only leave university with a huge HEX bill, if they then decide they want to team up and either in a partnership or a marriage and get themselves a house, they then have another horrendous debt on top of them. So all young people have two tremendous debts on top of them. And that's not real smart in, you know, in the, in, you know, in the country, uh, uh, you know, at all. And, and I, I remember going to France years ago. A friend of mine is a, is a 
the dean of one of the faculties in the Sorbonne University in Paris, which is one of the great universities of the world. Now, it's a university for the brightest students, not the wealthiest students, the brightest students. Right across France, you can, if you're a bright kid, even if you're living in poverty, if you're a bright kid, if you can prove you're a bright kid, you can get invited to the Sorbonne University free, your total education free, because France says we've got to get the best brains in the country and get them through and get them right. Now, a lot of people then complain, well, you know, we're not quite as bright, but we've got to pay and those aren't. But So France said if you've got bright kids, educate them without charge and get them out there into the economy. Now, that's one variation of it. What do you think of that? Should we have a university in Australia where the most brilliant in the nation go, whether they're poor or rich, the most brilliant in the nation go, and they're going to get churned out into the economy because of their... And, and they have higher quality of learning, higher quality of degrees and whatever you... And because they're, they're, they're at an upper level of mentality. Well, what do you think of that? I, I mean, to me, in, in an ideal world, because you point out, you pointed out, like it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, you can get into this university. That should be every university, you know. If we, we shouldn't. It, that should be the only uh, quality yeah, that yeah. gets someone into university, um, whether it, it's your your capabilities rather than um, your parents' finances. And as a system, I just I just worry with things like the ballooning out of hex, um, because it, it it sort of just inches us closer to that American system. And um, we, we, you know, we badmouth America a lot on this show. But something like university is really something that should be as accessible to as many people as possible. Because for so many people, education is the only way out of poverty. And it doesn't just lift that person out of poverty. It can help lift, you know, their parents, their family, et cetera, um, out of poverty. Because people who do great things can go back and give back. So someone who's from a poor community who might want to go get a law degree or a medical degree or um, some sort of other, like an accounting degree, whatever, may then go back to their community and provide their services um, to their community as well. So it's really, really important um, to be encouraging people to get these skills and, and the, the more costly it becomes um, is just another, it dissuades people. Yeah, well, we might on our program here keep an eye on this whole hex business. I think it's outdated. I think it needs a revolution. I'm not sure of the answer, but all I know is it's not working either for Australia at the moment or nor is it working for individual people trying to make their way in life. So let's keep this on the agenda. Right now, I want to move to England for a minute, uh, uh, James, you're not you. You're not anti-English, are you? You're you're a real royalist, aren't you? Oh, Where love the monarchy, Emerald. <laughs> love lo love the fact that there is a family over in the UK who, according to our legal system, is superior to you and I. It's just <laughs> anyway. I've been reading a book by Therese May. You remember Therese May was the Prime Minister of England at the time after just when when Cameron resigned after losing the Brexit referendum. She became and she was given a hell of a rough time. She tried very hard to get Brexit deal through with Europe and people like Boris Johnson and Reese Mogg and others ran down road. Now, she's written a book called Abuse of Power and it's five instances in her long political career. She was in Parliament a long time before she became Prime 
where she believed that the parliament and people in the parliament abused power, and she picked five instances in which this happened. And, and it's very interesting, and, and in one of them she was involved, and she actually takes the blame for just letting this go through to the wicket keeper and not doing anything about it, so she changed herself. But she talks about how every nation in the world just doesn't have to look at power, in, in electing people to power. We've got to be more careful about the abuse of power that, that politicians do it. And I'm reading this book and it's very readable. The trees may have gone up in my estimation, but while I'm reading it, a thing that she hasn't got in the books came up where it's now a, a, a television program has been put out in England called Mr Bates versus the Post Office. And it's how over the last decade, the Post Office, which has incredible powers given back to Parliament to people within the post office who abuse the Rome uh, can be actually sued by the post office itself, not going to a court. And so a computer program showed that postmasters in some, what they call sub-postmasters, where the postmaster owns the post office, that they were stealing money. And people were put in jail, several people suicided, they all claimed their incident. Innocent. One of them, a little guy called Mr. Bates, stood up and said, I'm going to fight. And as a result of his fight, and I can't go into the whole thing in this program, Sunak has now pardoned every one of those postmasters and have said that they've got to be paid back the money. And now there's an investigation into how this abuse of power happened because they relentlessly pursued this bit like RoboDebt where some people suicided. But it's the story of one little guy who stood up and said, I've had enough of this, Mr Bates, and there's now a program you can watch on British television of this little guy taking on the, the post office and winning on behalf of all sorts of people. Now, it brings the whole issue of abuse of power is now something that we've got to look at very hard in politics, haven't we? Well, I mean, it, it's kind of, it, it, it's funny because the UK seems to adopt all our most abusive policies. Um, you've just given an example of the UK, um, basically the, the post office adapting RoboDebt and using it to chase postmasters. And just like RoboDebt, it turns out a lot of them were frivolous. And like you say, it led to some people suffering extreme mental health anguish, even some killing themselves. But we're also seeing the UK try to adopt a horrible asylum seeker policy and deport all the asylum seekers who arrive on shore to uh, Rwanda. Um, which is, yeah. you know, really inhumane. And the UK Supreme Court has already said once, whoa, 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 you can't be doing that. Try again, buddy. We're not letting that through. Um, so we um, we talked about mining earlier, which was one of Australia's greatest exports. But apparently really inhumane and oppressive uh, government bureaucracy policies are also another one of the big exports that Australia is pushing at the moment. I mean, that to see the UK adopt not one but two of the most inhumane, um, just sickening, gross breaches of human rights that we've done over the past sort of decade or two, um, it's not very heartening, is it? It's not very heartening. And she goes to the point that Therese made in the book is that one of the people who abused power in the British Parliament was actually the Speaker of the House of Parliament who was forced to resign. And when you get the Speaker of the House who's supposed to be presiding over the Westminster system of... When the Speaker of the House gets caught for abuse of power, you've got to say to yourself, what the hell's happened to the system, haven't you? Yeah, and I mean, um, I just watched uh, 
Nemesis on the ABC this week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great show, great show. Um, recommend everyone to watch it. Two more episodes still to come. The first episode dealt with the Tony Abbott years, and it reminded me of Bronwyn Bishop's helicopter trip. Um, yeah. The 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 on taxpayer funds, no less. Um, and that you know, talking about abuses of power by the Speaker of the House. Um, you've got a great one right there too. Um, yeah, well, it, 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 I think we've reached the point where democracy is only going to survive if, if people like you and me and our listeners and others out there say we've had enough of being dominated by politics. It's time in all matters that little guys stand up and say this is the sort of nation we want and we're not going to cop you know, the nonsense that's going on. I think we, we've been too benign and sitting and saying, oh, this is all awful, instead of being like Mr Bates and saying, well, we're going to take on the system. And he was a, when you look at him, he's a tiny little innocuous guy, but they got him in a corner and he said, I've had enough, and he fought back. And if Mr Bates can fight back, anybody can, can't they, in the whole... Well, I, I we've got to make sure yeah. it happens. I, I think Everald Marx is saying that the proletariat have nothing to lose but their chains. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, well, 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 you know, well, well, well there we are. And, and that's uh, look, just one other thing before we get on the good guys and bad guys. Uh, uh, Peter Dutton and the opposition in Parliament have made a big hash of attacking uh, uh, the, the tax cut change that Elbow and Jim Chalmers made to stage three, which I think they did as good a job as was possible to do it. <clears throat> and later, that, then the Liberals have now found out that accusing, <coughs> accusing Albo of, of, of being a liar who promised one thing and did another isn't getting him anywhere because people all over the nation said, well, where were you guys when John Howard said, I will never in my career bring in a GST and then the next election he did. And so if you're going to wipe Albo, you better wipe John Howard as well. And just Howard, like Elbow, decided that the time had come for GST and he better do, uh, you know, he better do something about it. And so, but they're now looking at this and this morning news services are saying that uh, it could be that next, this week that Dutton becomes more conciliatory about it because he's now looking at the fact that 85% of the population are going to benefit in some way like this. So there's not a hell of a lot of votes in, in opposing it. And I think he's looking for a pragmatic solution. Do you think he can find a pragmatic solution? Well, it's funny. I saw just yesterday polling from Zoe Daniel, the Teal member for Goldstein, the independent for Goldstein, yeah. who uh, considers herself one of the Teals, or is called one of the Teals. Um, basically, <laughs> you know, wealthy electorate, and even a bulk of people in her electorate are saying, yeah, changes needed to be made to Morrison's tax cuts. So you've got the 85% who are going to be getting more money from what Albo's doing, mm. but you've also got people in that top 15% and a fair chunk too who recognise, yeah, it, it's it's probably fair enough that some changes had to be made given the changing conditions. So, you know, big tick for Albo, and I think the writing is on the wall for Dutton that he's got no path forward other than to support well, us. I tell you what, Dutton will go up in my estimation if he's game enough to say, look, I've made a mistake and... We're going to have to face this thing. I think if he's got the guts to do that, he'll get a few brownie points to do it. Let's see. Let's let's see what happens about it. Well, now, well, let's look at the good and the bad guys of the week. As time is marching on, James. Now, 
I think I might be a week late in this. I should have said it last week, but I've held it up because I know what a, a great cricketer you are. There's two things you're going to be one day. You're you're going to captain Australia at cricket, and then you're going to become the Prime Minister. I've got to sit around to make sure these two things uh, happen. But the West Indies won a test match in Brisbane uh, against all the odds, and they found a, a, a young bloke as a bowler who the Aussies just couldn't handle. And the West Indies had this magnificent win against the odds, and Pat Cummins was gentleman enough, as he always is, to say that was a mighty victory, but it reminded me of the glory days of West Indies cricket, West Indies has been the doldrums for a while now, but back back years and years ago, I remember the West Indies tour when we had the famous Tide Test in Brisbane and Wesley Hall was rocking in the fast bowling and Charlie Griffith and, you know, and and and, and Sobers and all these fellows were belting the Aussies around. Those. It reminded me of the, the days, and I remember... In racist Australia, and it was racist when I was growing up, this team of black guys come to Australia from the West Indies, dead black, and they thrashed the Aussies. Well, didn't there was a tied series, but they, they they put on a wonderful performance. And here was white kids everywhere who'd been brought up to the white Australia, all running around playing cricket. They weren't saying I'm Bradman or I'm I'm, I'm Lindwall or I'm Miller. They're running around saying I'm Wesley Hall and I'm Charlie Griffiths. And it was a marvellous, uh, you know, a marvellous thing. And so this revived it a bit. Uh, our listeners can't see, but I've got a massive smile on my face right now because that's just an incredible story. And, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm 24, but I'm so privileged to have, you know, a chat with you every week, Evel, because you've got so many years of insights and um, stories and tales to tell. And, you know, that, that's, that's one of many because there aren't, um, you know, a, a lot of people around anymore who can remember so vividly um the, the like the glory days of garfield sobers in the early 1960s um yeah so yeah incredible and i mean full credit to the west indies it's it's funny australia hadn't lost a single test at the gabba for like 30 years until india knocked them off two years ago and now they've lost two of their last three um one to india yeah, and, well, that's west interesting. and the thing was it did cricket a lot of good it was yes. an exciting game an absolutely exciting game and that's uh the way it ought to be. So there, the West Indies guys are my good guys of the week. Who, who are yours? Yeah, well, um, I, I mentioned Nemesis, the show on the ABC before, about um, base, it's basically about the inner workings and machinations of the Liberal government between the Abbott years, the Turnbull years, and the Morrison years. And it's it's tell-all interviews with Liberal politicians from the time. And I just want to um say my good guys of the week are the, the Liberal Party politicians who put their hand up to be interviewed. Um, this technically means Scott Morrison is one of my good guys of the week and I need to go wash my mouth out after I've said that. But, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an incredible show because for, for politics freaks like us who love this stuff and follow this stuff, um, it's, it's awesome to see publicly available broadcast these insights and tell-alls from people who were there at the time doing it, living it, and seeing behind the scenes. And, of course... Everyone who's being interviewed on that show will have their own agenda, and we've got to take what everyone says on a show like that with a grain of salt. We believe who we choose to believe, who we find credible, and we rebuke those we don't. But it's just, um, it's really, really cool that so many um, who were involved with the government during those years have put their hand up to be interviewed. I mean, you've got Malcolm Turnbull, you've got Scott Morrison, you've got Erica Betts, you've got Kalia Cash, you've got Birmingham, you've got Hunt. Um, 
and so many more. Sinodinus, um, no Tony. Tony specifically declined a request for an interview. But so many who are still currently sitting, have sat, were involved in it all. Have um, Warren Ench, Russell Broadbent, just so many. And it's been just really awesome to watch it and have that like available to people and to the public to hear um, from the people who were in the room um, what they felt was going on. So credit to the people who put their hand up to go on the show. True, and, and it became a, and those fellows have put themselves online. But you mentioned Warren Inch, he's an old mate of mine from North Queensland. I mean, he is just a basic, decent, honest, you know, country man. And he's the sort of bloke that I'd expect to stand up and, and say some, you know, you know, some, uh, some good. So it's good that, that that program came around. What's interesting is that Peter Credlin launched a pretty vicious attack on the program in the Australian and Sky News this week, saying that it was a terrible program of lies. And the ABC producer, not the ABC management, came back with a copy of a, a letter sent to her saying, will you please appear on Nemesis? We'll give you a run. And she didn't reply. She didn't reply. She was invited. And now she's saying the program told lies. Well, why the hell didn't she get on and say so? Because they said they'd give her a run. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. No, um, caught in the act. Um, it's, it, <laughs> it's great. That's, that's, that's good to know. And I mean, to be fair, I, I think the people who are, um, who watch Sky News and love what Peter Credlin has to say in year 2024 probably wouldn't care much for any ABC program, let alone one that has noted communist Malcolm Turnbull appearing. So, you're quite right. Uh, well, now, uh, so uh, uh, where were we at? Have, I, have you put out yeah, your yeah, good guys in the Mises? That's right. That's your good guys. I'm getting worried we were talking about good or bad guys. Now, now, now my my bad guy of the week, and I don't know whether to call them bad guys, but as you know, there's, there's been this issue of the pro-Palestinian rally in Sydney where people were supposed to have said some nasty things about Jewish people and and which made headlines in the media saying this Palestinian mob got up there. And the police investigated and it took them two weeks of interviewing people who were there to come up with a statement to say, well, no, those words that were said to have been spoken, no one on either side can recall them being spoken. But for two weeks, the Palestinian people got abused for running the rally, accused of saying words that, the police found didn't, and I'm wondering why it took the police two weeks to find out as well. It just it doesn't ring true, does it? Yeah, it, it's it's an all-round bad situation. Um, it's unfairly tarnished in the media the name of pro-Palestinian protesters and organisers, uh, and it's allowed people like Peter Dutton, who were interested in creating division, to do so. Um, it, it's been an all-round flub, and I'm glad the... Um, this, this was the, the protest at the Sydney Opera House, outside the Sydney Opera House and through through Sydney and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm glad that the, the names of the people who went there have finally been vindicated, that they did not say the pretty pretty gross things they were accused of saying. Yeah, well, who are your bad guys of the week, man? Um, so my bad guys of the week are the Northern Territory opposition. So Northern Territory has a big problem um, with throwing young, especially Indigenous kids, into really terrible juvenile justice facilities. They're called juvenile justice facilities, let me tell you. There is nothing just about them. Uh, and the Northern Territory opposition wants to bring back Spitwoods, 
um, which basically the the argument runs that um, there is a problem with these people, these young people under 16, um, some as you know, young as 10, getting arrested and then spitting on the police and the correctives. And so to do to solve this, we need to basically put a big hood over their face like a Guantanamo Bay detainee uh, to prevent them from spitting on correctives. Now, the big problem is research has been done into spit hoods and they do not work. Um, I'm not a scientist. I don't know why. But I know that the uh, Northern Territory Children's Commissioner has come out this week because the Labor government got rid of them and basically said the reason they were got rid of is because they do not work to prevent um, disease and infection, etc., being wrought upon uh, correctives. All they serve to do is just dehumanise and torture um, underage detainees. And the opposition, the, the country Liberal Party is committing to bring them back so we can continue treating Indigenous people like Guantanamo Bay detainees. And it's just a really sad state of affairs, I think. Well, it is. And the whole youth justice thing is a sad state of affairs. Somehow or other, we've got to se separate the real bad guys and the young guys who've only offended once or twice and have some sort of rehabilitation places where they can go and work on a farm or something or other and, and learn a trade and get them out of the atmosphere in, in which they are. And, uh, and uh, the, I, I think, uh, you know, the way we're handling the whole youth is, I'm not an expert on it, but it just does not ring true that we're anywhere near a solution, are we? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take one thing that Ken Wyatt said during Nemesis, actually. He was talking about Tony Abbott's work with Indigenous people. And he said, he, like, he had no doubt Tony had really did think in his mind he was helping. But what Tony Abbott would always do is he would do things to Indigenous people, not with Indigenous people. And that was a big problem in the Tony Abbott years with Indigenous policy. Um, and I think that's a big problem with how the youth justice system is being run now. We're doing things yeah. to communities, not with communities. And it's it's uh, antithetical toward to, to actually fixing um, the problem. Oh, good, good point. Well, youth justice is a thing we should refer to regularly on our program. Dan, well, look, I think we've uh, we've had a good week. I think we've just run out of time, and we've covered a few good things. And uh, and so it's been good to have our usual chat, James. Next week, I'll, without giving any political secrets away, I'll comment on the state of Parliament after after two or three days. Uh, two or three days there, and at some point, too, we must talk about the work that you're doing in the courts for people who can't afford a lawyer. We need to have a look at that without breaching any secrets of your clients. <laughs> that whole system needs need to look at as well. So there's a, there's a lot of things we can talk about. Well, thanks for the yarn this week, James, and we'll, we'll talk again next Saturday. Yep, thanks, Avril. Hope everyone enjoyed the uh, the episode. Episode two of Nemesis is on uh... <laughs> Monday at, at uh, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock with the ABC uh, doing the Turnbull years next. So uh, get excited, everyone. I'm sure we'll have something to say about that next week too. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. Good on you. Thanks, James. Bye.